The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, we again return thanks to you, and as has been expressed already in prayer and song and even just amongst ourselves in the, the context of fellowship and greeting one another, we are mindful of the, the generous range of your blessings and we think about uh, this Psalm 145 even as we read this morning, the, the final psalm that's credited uh, directly to David in the Psalter. And we think about the range of expression um, that he uh, provided throughout the psalms in the context of worship and prayer and um, sometimes crying out to you in desperation and in pain and fear and frustration and other times just e- expressing confidence and uh, unrestrained joy and thanksgiving and we we recognize the the range in which you graciously afford us to approach you um, to engage you and to to express our needs and our our confidence and our joy and our hopes and sorrows and all the range of things that a, a kind father is receptive to to have and to to provide for us so we we thank you for that but especially um, a psalm of thanksgiving um, and, and thought a psalm of praise and a psalm declaring your excellencies in a, a range of ways. And we can, uh, we can echo that ourselves. And we, we think about the others who have echoed these things, both the, the character of God expressed in your great mercies and compassions. We think about um, the enduring and magnificence of your kingdom, as was affirmed by both Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar in his own humility. And so we, we thank you that as we hear these things, so much truth is uh, welled up in our minds and memories, and it, it causes us to join in praise to you. And even as the, the canon of Scripture has been further developed and things that we uh, have looked at, things we'll continue to work at today, First Peter, or excuse me, Second Peter chapter 2 and the life of Christ, we, we have so much revelation about you and your character and your purposes and how you um, have worked out your plan, how you've protected and cared for your people. And so, Lord, we want to return thanks to you. Uh, We want to to give praise to you. Um, And we praise you, Lord, for our redemption in Christ. Um, We thank you that that's a sure and kept reality. I think about that, especially as we um, uh, weigh through some matters that Peter introduces to us with those who have apostatized and abandoned the faith. They've left the way of righteousness. They've left the right way. Um, I thank you, Lord, that you keep those who are yours, that we have a sure inheritance, that we have a hope that's fixed, and uh, that's because of your work and not not something we have to depend on for ourselves, but we do certainly have a role in, in uh, uh, conducting ourselves in faith and faithfulness, so we do pray, Lord, keep us. Uh, finishing a race well is not inevitable, um, but in you, it, it certainly is, so we, we pray, Lord, keep us, help us to finish well. Think about those in San Marino as we've uh, highlighted there's just there's such little information what we do know is there's a need for greater gospel clarity gospel opportunity um, we we think about even as Matt mentioned the size of our our fellowship here and how in some ways we would be larger and perhaps even uh, dwarf their presence in terms of uh, by comparison but Lord that it just reminds us that uh, in as much as this is your church you have your church there and uh, you have your people there, and we rejoice in that. And we, we, we're curious to see how will you make your name great through um, this small uh, fellowship of people in a very challenging city-state. Um, 
a city-state surrounded by a lot of history and culture, um, but that's forgotten its roots in terms of, uh, I imagine, and uh, when it was founded and a faithful believer fleeing persecution, a community of believers probably more purity than presently exist uh, in most of the context there. Uh, so, Lord, we, we pray, Lord, provoke and use your word. Use use others and the variety of means that you do to draw people to faith, genuine faith. And, Lord, find us faithful. Um, as, again, has been prayed, we recognize we're dependent on you and your spirit to teach us, to help us, to make your word clear, and uh, to give us the grace to put it to action in a way that pleases you. Um, today will be different in that regard. Um, it's a it's a reminder of our own steadfastness and the need to be steadfast, and you're keeping us. But there's certainly things to, to give attention to, to think about, to put to action, uh, to repel even those who would seek to do your church harm and to be confident that you will, you'll deal with them. You'll deal with them as they ought to be dealt with, which is justly and righteously. Uh, Lord, have mercy, though. Um, and again, may we be found faithful and pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be returning to our work in 2 Peter chapter 2, and we've reached the, the end of the section, which we divided up into three sections. So we have the first, or 2 Peter chapter 2 has a lot to say about false teachers. Uh, the whole of the chapter, but the second half of the chapter kind of lent itself to be broken up into, to, I'd say, three sections, and I've identified those as two what's and a why, two what's and a why of the false teacher. Um, the first what section covered verses 10 and 11 and addressed the false teacher's despising of authority. The second what section covered verses 12 through 16 and addressed the false teacher's corrupt lust. And now we've come to the third section covering verses 17 through 22 and with it the why of the false teacher. So whereas the two prior sections address the outworking of the, their character and their conduct, this section will continue this pattern but specifically with a view as to why. Why this despising of authority? Why this corrupt lust? Uh, questions that are answered by the false teacher's identity as entangled slaves. Uh, entangled slaves who, like Balaam, have left and who have forsaken the right way. So, it's, again, a lot of times we struggle with why did they do that? Why were they like that? Well, Peter, I think, pulls back the curtain a little bit further at this point in time and explains they've, they've abandoned, they've left, they've forsaken the right way. So with our view to our, our place in our chapter and the nature of our larger context of Peter's vigorous engagement of these false teachers, let's pick up with the beginning of this second half and read through the end, covering each of these sections and finishing with our third and final section today. So let's give our attention to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 22, Mindful that our primary attention today will be on 17 through 22. So Peter writes as follows. He picks up, and especially, speaking of the false teachers, and especially those who go after the flesh and its corrupt lust and despise authority, daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they blaspheme glorious ones, whereas angels who are greater in strength and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these... Like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, blaspheming where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering unrighteousness is the wages of their unrighteousness. Considering it a pleasure to revel in the daytime, they are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and unceasing sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, 
They are cursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own lawlessness. For a mute donkey speaking out with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. And then our section this morning, these are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been kept. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by sensual lust of the flesh those who barely escape from the ones who conducted themselves in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if they are overcome, having both escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and having again been entangled in them, then the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed unto them. The message of the true proverb has happened to them. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Now, many of you will recall that we're going to quickly enter into some challenging language at the end of the section today. Perhaps you picked up on this as we read just now, uh, namely the language of apostasy, um, of being identified with Christ and ultimately separated from Christ. And we knew this was coming, as I hope you recall, several weeks ago when we began our work in 2 Peter chapter 2, we were introduced to this weighty reality as we worked through the false teacher, denying the master who bought them. So we saw that right from their introduction that there's something of identity of disassociation with Christ. They, they want to be identified with Christ, and yet they're, they're distant. They're disti- they're, they've separated themselves in some measure by some form of... Uh, Uh, rejection, uh, some form of denial, and we saw that this was building up and that it was very clear here at the end. So we even had an allusion to it as far back as our work in chapter 1, where we were warned that there are those who will not obediently supply their faith with these things. So mindful, chapter 1 didn't have an overt treatment of it, but we were told these things need to be uh, supplied to your faith, but those who don't supply these things. And what are these things? Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, and agape love. That those who don't supply their faith with these things, they're, they're deficient in certain areas. And it's as though they've forgotten their baptismal testimony. And so there was a bit of a foreshadowing that there's going to be some who don't do what they ought to do. And, and they're going to they're suffer accordingly. Not necessarily apostatize, but it sets you on a very bad trajectory. And while these persons, again, were not identified as leaving the faith, abandoning the faith in chapter 1, they've, they've put themselves in a compromised and dangerous trajectory. So let's see what actually Peter says. You see it up there on the screen as well. For in whom these things are not present. Right? So do this. This is the command. Supply your faith with these things. But for those whom these things are not present, that one is blind, being nearsighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. And again, as you recall, Peter is noting it's as though, as we've mentioned, they've forgotten their baptismal testimony, that was the purification from their sins, where they publicly affirmed their identification in Christ, forsook their former sins. Now, in regard to some who have drifted away, and the false teachers in particular, no, um, nothing was undone, right? Nothing was undone that was really ever done to begin with. And so that's part of what I want to make sure we're clear on with apostasy. It's not that, whoa, He's saying that they just didn't obey and now now everything fell apart. Well, no, it wasn't quite that simplistic. There's nothing that's happened that's been undone. 
The matter is what was ever done to begin with. So there, I would argue, was the illusion of salvation. And that illusion of salvation was a deception, perhaps even a self-deception, but a deception nevertheless. And the nature of this deception, the, the illusion of deception, makes me think of magicians. And so uh, sometimes they're referred to as illusionists now. I think it's probably a more polite way to think of it. Maybe we feel better about inviting them to, to children's parties or going to spend our money. We'll call them illusionists. Well, it used to be called magicians. And not the ones that um, engage in some uh, uh, cultic-like practices, but rather the ones that are uh, participate in what, we, what I would refer to as a polite form of deception. Now, don't go around and be like, huh, I got you, but it was polite. Now, there's a polite form of deception by way of illusion and sleight of hand, and it would appear that they did something that never really happened, right? They, things that they seems like they bent the rules of how things work, but it's because they didn't really. It was a polite form of deception that you chose to engage in. You chose to do it for entertainment purposes, to watch and to suspend what you know to be true with what you see appears to be true. And what happens is, again, they do things that um, they did something that really never happened. And you're, you're left to wonder how they changed something from outside of its natural capacity to change. Uh, maybe they introduced an object into the wrong place. They, they had a ball over here or some animal or creature or whatever. And now it's over here. And wait, it was there. How did that happen? You can't just do that. Well, again, there's a sleight of hand. Or maybe they, they cut something and, or broke something and it's still intact. Well, how did they do that? Well, again, it was a, a polite form of deception, um, and it's uh, and a sleight of hand and a, a skill, as it were, to, 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 again, to deceive, to misdirect. Well, in a similar but impolite way, there was every indication that the apostate was genuinely in Christ, only to ultimately prove it was a deception, not a sleight of hand, but a sleight of heart, where you're saying, what they, they were in Christ, and now they're not. How did that happen? It can't happen. It, well, it's because... There was nothing done, undone that was ever done to begin with. There was a measure of deception. Perhaps, again, deception with them, but certainly a deception toward others as well. So when we come to a passage that has the language of apostasy, we're naturally troubled. Again, it's like the magician. We know what we saw, right? We know he, he did this. It doesn't work that way, but we saw it. We experienced it. It felt very real. And so when we come to a passage, again, of a, uh, with the language of apostasy, it really bothers us. Because the, there was deception of identity that ends with one proving to have never genuinely been in Christ. And we're trying to figure out, how does that work? Why is the language that's for us applied to them, and it proves to never really been applied to them? So, again, proving it, this, this makes it particularly wicked and, and hard um, and damaging, this expression of unbelief, both for the person and those around them. It hurts us, right? It's not just that it hurts them, it hurts others. Now, what is especially impactful about our engagement with apostasy at the end of this chapter is that the language used here, again, it's the language used in the opening of the book for the believer. Wait a second, that, it doesn't work because it's over here, but how to jump over here? Believer language being applied to the apostate, that doesn't work. It works, though, if they were really never part of one and versus being part of the other, being separated from Christ. So you have the language in the opening of the book of 2 Peter applied toward the apostate. So the language speaking specifically to our salvation. But here, it's speaking about the false teacher. So how does that work? It's, is it, it's, um, it's not framed in a, this is our hope, and they never knew it. It's not framed that way. And that's the curious thing. So sometimes when I'm 
uh, speaking to different groups, I've had opportunities to teach in assisted living homes, and um, I'm on a weekly rotation now teaching in a jail context, and sometimes I'll teach about truth, and I'll pause and be like, well, you know, if you're outside of Christ, this really has nothing to do with you. But you can come to Christ, and this is how, and I'll explain gospel foundations. But that's not what Peter's doing here. He's not saying, this is our hope, and they never knew it. That would be easy for us to work with, right? If he just said, they didn't understand these things, or they were never really embracing these things, and, and that's, how they're, that's why they've strayed. But the challenge comes from the fact that we have the same language about our hope, and they appear to have experienced it as well. But what we'll work through today is that just like the rabbit didn't instantaneously appear in the magician's hat, which I hope I didn't spoil something for anybody, it wasn't, it was, it was there all along, or behind a little door, it didn't instantaneously appear, neither were the apostates ever truly in Christ. It can feel and seem and look so real, but the deception is that it was never real at all. And while there are a variety of terms and allusions in 2 Peter to a, a, shared faith in, a shared faith in Christ by the apostate false teachers, the most explicit here are the ones that I've referenced to and now that I want you to see. So we see in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and then at the end of our, cha- end of our section, 2 Peter 2, 20 to 21, note the similarities in language and terms. So speaking to believers, speaking about us, seeing that his divine, so seeing that Christ's divine power has granted us everything to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him. He likes that term knowledge. We saw that was a major theme of the book. He develops it, that intimate insight and experiential and, uh, again, just a more consequential expression of knowledge through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That's us, right? And, right? We're clear on that. And that's something we take a lot of joy in. We worked in that. We were rejoicing. We are like, wow, 2 Peter 1 is very similar to 1 Peter 1 in that he opens his book with that foundation of salvation, things that we can get our hands around, things that can further articulate and express our salvation in Christ and grounds for opportunity to rejoice and to, to be rooted. But then we get to the end of chapter 2. For if they, what's the antecedent to this? This is the false teachers that he's been really just uh, dealing with very firmly throughout the chapter. If they, the false teachers, are overcome, having both escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's our language, right? And having again been entangled them, then the last state has become worse for them than the first. So they've left the faith, and now they're in great peril, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. That's our experience, than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. So again, note, through the full knowledge of Christ, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by by lust, that's, that's what we enjoy, that's our experience. But then the apostate, having both escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, having known the way of righteousness. So you see, Peter is using the language of our hope and our identity to also express something of the false teacher's hopelessness and identity. A culminating exposure of them in a chapter that dressed the false teacher down from the very start all the way to the very end and severely rebuked them for their assault on the church. 
Now, this is a culmination of the chapter, this last section, and we will finish our work in this section, 17 to 22, but we're going to um, take a little bit of an introductory pause because this, this uh, apostasy language is something I want to address first because, again, in, Peter's, in view of Peter's like language and how he applied it to the church, I think this is the most important and challenging part of our section. So when we understand the nature of apostasy and we understand the nature of the false teacher as it relates to apostasy, I think we're going to be able to move quite naturally through this section and drive to a fitting conclusion. So what I don't want to do is false teacher, unpack, unpack, unpack. Wow, wait a second. That's our language. How do we understand that? They abandoned the faith. How do we go and then pick it back up? So let's front load it with a, a more exhaustive treatment on their apostasy, and then we can come back and address them more completely in a, a more uh, casual flow, as it were. Now, that being said, as we advance in this subject, I hope you are a little unsettled. Is anybody unsettled yet? I hope so. I, I hope that, again, if someone's appropriating our language to speak of something very bad, that should bother us. It should really bother us. Because while the matter of apostasy is not limited to uh, Peter's treatment of it here, we know both Paul and the author of Hebrews speaks to it directly as well, it is nevertheless a weighty and grievous subject. It doesn't need to be something that, oh yeah, it gets talked about in 1 Corinthians, and oh yeah, it gets talked about in Hebrews. It should bother us every time. It should be a burden. So one that uh, may even produce a measure of fear within us. Because by all indications, these were persons who were thought to have genuinely been in Christ. It wasn't that... Oh, yeah, apostate Bob. We knew, we saw that coming. That's why we gave him that nickname. You know, this was a, whoa, wait a second. They had every indication, every indication. And as we noted, the language applied toward them is our language. So in working to understand the nature of the apostate false teacher, I think a good foundation is to have a point of categorical relation for them. So something that we can understand to give us kind of a, a springboard to let's further develop this. I think that helps us. So to associate them with, uh, with uh, something, again, that we can uh, use as a treatment of a foundation to further impact their identity. So with that, uh, perhaps we can consider putting them of one of the following three categories of persons. I think of these as similar in some ways. And so let's work through where, can they, where do they fit? How can we begin to get our hands around it so that we can progress in the conversation? So the first category would be uh, there were the failed seeds in the parable of the sower and the seeds. So there was uh, um, also the religious leadership that opposed Jesus' public ministry. That was the second one. We've seen that a lot with uh, Pastor Frank walking us through the life of Christ. And then there was the son of perdition or, or son of destruction, Judas Iscariot. So let's look at these and see where might the false teacher, the false apostate teacher fit in so that we can further understand why this language and, and what Peter's saying about them and, and, and uh, helping us understand them and, and to rebuke them properly. So we begin with the failed seed might be a way of understanding this, this similar language as there, was, uh, there were some seeds that appeared to take root for a while. You remember that in the parable there. Um, one of them took root among the rocks. So it did take root. It didn't just die, it took root. And while it did take root, it was shallow. They fell away with troubles and struggles. And so, so there you have somebody that was identified to a gospel kingdom response. And they, they, they went up, but they withered away. Was that a with us and then not with us? 
Maybe, uh, but not quite, I don't think. Then there was the one that was among the thorns, where the worries of the world and deceitfulness of riches choked it out. Again, we've seen that. We've seen that within the church where someone comes to faith and they're excited and then it doesn't take much and they're gone. Was that, was that the apostatizing nature of what Peter's speaking to here? Potentially, but I don't necessarily think so. Um, because it appears the false teachers have a longer experience, right? This is not a, wow, that's so sad. They, they appear to have a genuine conversion and they drifted away so quickly. These are ones that have worked themselves up into the position of teachers. Um, and they're in relationships within the church. And, and again, I, I would see this as gospel responses that didn't endure with the seeds versus the false teachers have a, a longer game, as it were. So in some measure, they maintain a proximity, if not a true relationship with the church. So we're going to scratch that first one out. Next could be a comparison with the religious leadership that opposed Jesus' public ministry. And these are potentially strong points of relation as they had a facade of holiness and obedience, right? Uh, the, the public perception was, that's our leadership, right? Those are God's men. But they were the most severely rebuked persons by Jesus and were murderous in their efforts, efforts to suppress him and ultimately proved to be murderers. They were, they were willing to act. They just let someone else do the dirty work, as it were. They were declared to be hypocrites by Jesus and the only company to be charged with the unpardonable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So the religious facade and corrupt hearts certainly make them worthy of consideration, right? Because they had every indication they were God's people, even leadership and teaching. However, while corrupt, they didn't appear to be as profane and carnal as the false teachers. They, they certainly abused and misdirected the, the principles and precepts of the scriptures, but they weren't necessarily profane in their carnality. And there's a bit, there's a major difference there because Peter has spoken so much of that. And they obviously failed to make a full and proper comparison as they publicly denied the gospel and Jesus' lordship. So it's, it's not even an artificial association. It's, there's really no proximity to Christ or his church. So we just got to scratch them out as well. So then we have Judas. Judas. Remember Judas, son of perdition, or Judas Iscariot, son of destruction, who Peter stated was counted among us. Who's the us? It's the apostles. This is the believing community. These are the ones that were most intimately in proximity to our Lord. Was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. He was functioning like every other apostle. But who was, as Jesus stated, also uh, would have been better to have never been born. That's pretty frightening. He was one of us, walked with us, served with us, had his portion among us. But then Jesus says, the Son of Man is going just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That's pretty frightening, harsh language. And this is the example that I can better understand when hearing Peter's charge here, a charge that uses language of the redeemed as though they were one truly among us, but ultimately have proven to only been amongst us. And that's a major distinction. It would appear they were among us, but it really they were only amongst us. They heard, they saw, they understood, and in some measure were impacted by truth perhaps not unlike the beneficial nature of an unbeliever having a, a believing spouse or somebody have a believing parent 
themselves appropriating the exterior signs of grace in one's life. Maybe they're, they are good folks, they're obedient, they're law-abiding, they make good employees and good students, but they lack the root, right? Tragically self-deceived or simply content with being near Christ but not submitted to Christ. However, like Judas, the false teacher, introduces, um, there's, a, there's a special measure of offense with the nature of his proximity and his hypocrisy and his disassociation with Christ. Because the apostates, they're slaves who postured themselves as free. And while having a measure of experience and proximity and relationship to Christ and his people, they've never truly submitted to Christ and therefore are not kept. They do not finish. And in the case of this company, also would destroy others with them. Because again, they are apostates. But as I mentioned last week, they're apostates, I would say, of the worst kind. Because they don't just, they don't own their position, but rather promote themselves as being both in Christ and teachers of his truths, assuming an authority that they might advance their destructive heresies deeper and further into the truth. So an apostate that says, you know what, I've walked, I did that whole church thing 15, 20 years and I've, I'm done. You know, I got burned. I feel like, I feel like God failed me. That kind of apostate is really sad and tragic. But I think there's a more profane nature to the apostate that thinks the same way, but stays embedded in the church so as to destroy Christ's people. And that's the nature of the false teacher. And if we're tempted to think that maybe something broke, something changed, or, or even worse that yet, that Christ, maybe Christ can't keep his own. Because the language is just too intimate to have not been first identified with a believer. So now we're reverting back and saying, I, I understand Judas. And that's a really good point of relation because it's very similar. But maybe something happened because why would, would Peter use this language? And why would someone be so close to the church? But I would remind you of what the language of the believer includes. Not just proximity to Christ, but much, much more. Even as expressed, again, by the author of this section, the Apostle Peter. So, that being said, let's do a little exercise here. I want to examine what Peter said to the false teacher up to this point of our passage today. And I want to make it really clear that we don't have to be fearful or confused. They weren't just appropriating our language and very much like us. They were appropriating our language and very much unlike us. So let's walk through that. And we'll even develop this further as we advance further in the chapter. But I'm just going to go with the, the first 16 verses or so that we've already covered so far in chapter 2. And then we're going to compare that to what Peter says of salvation and the true believer in Christ. I want to stay in Peter's world. I want to use Peter's language because he's the one that we're working with. So let's see what he has to say about these false teachers. And let's see what he has to say later about true believers and the nature of true salvation. And see if that can't help sort some of this out for us. So regarding the false teacher, we have a number of things. Um, they're identified as the contemporary counterpart to the false prophet. Okay, so that's, a, that's something we can definitely a point of identification with. They secretly introduce destructive heresies. They deny the master who bought them. They lead others away by means of their sensuality. They cause the way of the truth to be maligned. In their greed, they exploit believers with false words. They indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. They despise authority. They are profoundly arrogant. They are consumed with sin, or they are so consumed with sin that they are like unreasoning animals. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They revel in the deceptions as they mingle with believing within the believing community. They have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. They entice unstable souls. They have exercised and trained their hearts in greed. 
They have forsaken the right way, having gone astray. They love the wages of unrighteousness. That's quite a list, isn't it? That's not confusing. Are they in Christ? Absolutely not. So think about the this resume that Peter's developed for the false teacher and hold that in mind. Keep that list in mind. I'm going to try to keep it up there for a while. And then we'll consider how Peter preached, spoke, and wrote of salvation and the true believer in Christ, considering how the identity of the false teacher holds up to those matters, particularly with a view to of considering if it was ever even possible that they were truly in Christ, or if it was not rather gross deception that camouflaged itself with the language and proximity to the truly redeemed. And if you think that's a silly prospect that is that really necessary uh, to, to make these fine of a distinctions? Uh, maybe it, it's not that challenging to parse such persons apart. Look at that list. It's so obvious who they are. But I don't think it's always so obvious. This is retrospect, right? This is looking back and saying, ah, that's what they were up to. Because I would remind you of, again, Judas Iscariot's deception, which was so skillfully and painfully executed that when Jesus stated that one of his own would betray him, remember the upper room, and he says, one of you is going to betray me. Who pointed at Judas? Nobody. Rather, the idea of any of them betraying their Lord provoked the faithful to do what? They began self-examining. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. The self or the, the righteous were saying, Lord, not me, not me, right? I'm not gonna fail you, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna betray you. I want to argue it's not easy to parse these matters, but Peter's provided us a clear standard from which we can understand this weighty matter of a true and a false identity in Christ. So beginning with this first letter, first Peter we see a number of things. So in chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, Peter expresses salvation as a work of the triune God who has been, um, for those who have been redeemed in Christ, uh, they, we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the obedience of the Son, has uh, whose blood brought them into this covenant. So that's our identity. This is a work of the triune God. So nothing broke, nothing happened, nothing separated the true believer. It was the work of the triune God. You're not undoing and outdoing that. Also, we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, um, uh, well, uh, we see that Peter explicitly states that God the Father has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of the Son. This was an act outside of yourself. So God caused redemption in Christ. Um, we continue on. We see um, working through uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 that Peter makes it clear that God keeps the genuine and true believer. Who keeps the true and genuine believer? God does. The true believers who have been born again by means of the work of the triune God who acted in accordance to his good pleasure has provided them an eternal inheritance, has provided thus an eternal, eternal inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. Nothing can touch it. Nothing can diminish it. It's being kept in heaven for genuine believers who themselves are protected by the power of God through faith for a, for a full and final salvation. That's... That's a sure reality, isn't it? Absolutely sure. So in this, Peter's expressing that the sure eternal inheritance cannot be tarnished or damaged. It's fixed and sure, but so also is the true believers receiving of it as they are being preserved for the inheritance by God's power. I don't care how amazing or terrible an apostate is. They're not superseding God's power, right? So the genuine are kept. So there's a distinction. We continue on. As sure as God chooses and saves, he keeps. 
Um, in chapter 1, we also see Peter teaches that genuine faith holds fast amidst trials, temptations, and suffering, and that testing temptations and suffering do not disqualify the quality of true faith, but expose fraudulent expressions of faith. We see that in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Peter makes it clear that true believers have a, a prepared and sober mind with a view to the glorious a return of Christ, and we're even commanded to, to have sober, fixed minds on Christ's return. Chapter 1, verse 13, believers are expected to have and continue forsaking their former lust and are commanded to live lives of holiness. That's, that's the absolute antithesis, right, to the false teacher, that we do what? Forsaking former lust, commanded to live lives of holiness. We are not baiting people with lust. We are not indulging in wicked, carnal lives. Believers are to live in view of the righteous and impartial judge conducting themselves in fear in view of our costly salvation purchased with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. Verses 17 to 21 of 1 Peter 1. Believers, continuing in 1 Peter 1, believers have been commanded to fervently, vigorously do what? Remember this one? We fervently, we vigorously, one another, we love one another. Because we've been born again to an incorruptible seed by the word of God. That's what he tells us at the end of chapter 1. Believers are to lay aside that which marks the old man, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, namely malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander, and are to be nurtured in the word of God, growing in their salvation with a notable qualification that if they've genuinely experienced Christ's salvation. Chapter 2, verse 8, by contrast, the unbelieving are expressed as those who are disobedient to the word of God. Chapter 2, verse 11 of 1 Peter, believers are to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Second uh, Peter, or excuse me, 1 Peter 2, 12, uh, all the way to 3, uh, halfway through 3, uh, believers are to be subject to all authorities for the Lord's sake. Peter reminds us, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 1 Peter 3, 12. The life patterns and conduct of the believer are of such a nature that an unbelieving world does what? They despise it to the point of opposing it. They live not for the lust of men, but for the will of God. 1 Peter 4, 1-6. Genuine believers live in view of the end, and in this, love one another and exercise their gifting to the glory of God to include those who we can categorically say teach, because Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 10, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracle of God. Does that sound like someone using deceptive words to introduce destructive heresies? Absolutely not. Genuine pastoral leadership serves as faithful under-shepherds of Christ's church, meaning that they do not serve under compulsion or for sordid gain. doesn't sound like someone that's trained in greed. Remember that last week? They're, something that comes naturally, that's like they're exercising themselves at it. The, the under-shepherd doesn't lord themselves over the other others, but they're rather examples to the flock. And then we got to 2 Peter. We saw in chapter 1, genuine believers have divine power for everything necessary for life and godliness. Again, that does not sound like one that's been overcome by sin, does it? He says very clearly at the end of chapter 2, they have, they're slaves to sin because you're enslaved to that which you've been overcome. And what does he say about the true believer in 2 Peter chapter 1? That by God's divine power, we've been given everything necessary for life and godliness. There's a clear contrast there. And as we've already referenced this morning and worked diligently to establish in prior weeks, the genuine believer diligently supplies their faith with these things. Remember, we kept going over these things, and we kept going over these things, and we kept going over these, this list of seven things to supply to our faith. 
And not only that, but in doing these things, one makes their calling and choosing sure. So I said we should be a little disrupted this morning, but not necessarily for ourselves, right? Because Peter says, in doing these things, your calling is sure, your entrance into the kingdom is sure, and you will never stumble. Remember how, to me, that was profound to me. Never stumble? Can he really say that? He says, yes, if you're doing these things. He says in um, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, In this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. In doing these things. Now, with what we understand of the false teacher, as you have up here on the screen, and what we understand of, the, um, of what Peter's spoken to regarding salvation in Christ and the life and calling of the true believer, does the language that is so intimately associated with the church drive us to the conclusion that these persons, well, maybe they were just carnal believers. Or maybe they're just ones that never submitted the full, full, lord, uh, full lordship of Christ. I think not. It stands in striking contradiction to what Peter says, this is what it looks to like to be in Christ. He doesn't say, well, you know, there's, there's those ones that, uh, they've got their B game going, but they'll step it up. This is what it looks like to be in Christ. And if you're doing the other, you're, you're dangerously looking toward something else. You might not be there, but you're on a trajectory there. So might it be that the apostate false teachers are like their predecessor, Judas, who walked in Jesus' shadow, shared his meals, affirmed his message, performed his signs, and was part of the closest group of men to the incarnate Messiah, but who is also to be pitied that he walked this earth because of the weight of judgment that he brought upon himself, all the while deceiving those closest to him, including Peter, only to be so plainly, so plainly a son of destruction as his life was subsequently exposed. That, to me, is one who can be spoken of in these most intimate of terms, only to be proven to be a fraud, and a fraud who, while deep undercover, enjoyed some of the sweet blessings of grace known by the genuine believer but enjoyed it superficially, and to the end that they suffer even more greatly. Not unlike the cities that Jesus rebuked for their unique place and time in history, of um, their, their rebuke for personally hearing uh, by Messiah and those he dispatched out to repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and, and to believe Messiah. And they disregarded him, and they disregarded his message. And what did Jesus say in response? That, woe to you! It'll be better and more tolerable in judgment for other wicked cities and other wicked persons than it is for you because with proximity and opportunity comes greater culpability. If they had heard, they would have responded. And how tragic that Judas Iscariot, think about this. I don't think we think about this very often. I certainly don't go down this road very often. thought about it this week when I was laboring through this is that Judas Iscariot, we're so familiar with him. Even the gospel authors, they, they kind of qualify us right off the bat. Uh, so Pastor Frank very diligently teaches us to think about, uh, to, be, um, to be mindful of context in the moment of the context in terms of don't, don't uh, impute further revelation back until you let the text develop itself. But Matthew kind of cheats a little bit. He says, Judas Iscariot, you know, the one that betrayed him. We're like, wait, you've revealed, you've told too much. We don't know that yet. We find that out later. But they want to make it so clear. This is the guy. This is the guy. But what, what could have been Judas Iscariot's testimony? It could have been the exact same as John. You know, John testifies him who we heard, who we saw, who we touched. Judas could have said every bit of that, right? 
He could have had the, the testimony of John. His story was one of hearing, seeing, and touching, but tragically included betraying. The very conduct of the false teacher does the very same thing, who under the banner of Christ leads mobs and betrays his beloved by means of the kind of access that only a friend has to another. That intimacy of betrayal, that they've worked themselves into the church. And so I'd say, yeah, be troubled by apostasy. It is a troubling subject. But don't be troubled by the language of Peter in this section, because in using this language, he's not identifying the apostate false teachers having been genuinely in Christ and now separate, but is expressing their intimate proximity and deceptive conduct. He's unmasking them, an identity and conduct that is quickly exposed by the larger volume of information that Peter uses in expressing the nature of salvation in the true believer. These two matters, true belief and conduct and the false teacher's identity and conduct, they're wholly incompatible. We need to see that. I want to draw that out so very plainly. So when you see that intimate language, you're not like, wait a second, they, were, they, were they really? No, they never, ever, ever were really in Christ. Now, with this foundation established, let's finish our unpacking of the false teacher's identity and conduct, driving to the finish of their exposure and rebuke in this chapter. And it's not complicated. We'll work through it fairly efficiently. So let's, let's go through this uh, one piece at a time here. Chapter 2, verse 17. Peter goes on. He's already been unpacking the nature and character of the false teacher. He picks up, these are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been kept. So Peter gives two very clear illustrations regarding the integrity and value of the false teachers and then their sure end. First, the, the waterless springs, perhaps more offensive or disheartening than a mirage of a, of a pool of water on a hot day. So even now, we get this idea, you can look on the road and when it's really hot, it looks like, wow, it looks like water. And you can imagine if you were really desperate and you, you had that, oh, that experience that's not real. Even more offensive is when you come upon a spring that should be producing water and it's dead, it's useless. Only to, you come upon the spring only to find that that which naturally should be producing life-giving refreshment has nothing to offer. And then there's the language and the image of mist driven by a storm. Temporary vapor sent along by tumultuous experiences producing nothing of value. So these storms, these old pop-up uh, violent storms, just pushing the mist through. They, they've served no purpose. They, they're useless. They're without foundations, without form, without hope, violently passing through to no benefit. So false teachers can be viewed as having the, the promise and expectation of hope and life but are offensively useless and without true substance or anchor. They are violently driven along to the utter darkness which has been kept for them, a place of sure and eternal torment. This is dark darkness, Peter says, and with this comes a striking contrast to the true believer's blessed hope, further affirming the false teacher's distinction from those who are truly in Christ, and finding for these wicked persons an association that is closer to the fallen angels who have been supernaturally bound for thousands of years than to those who are truly in Christ. So there, I want to, um, I think you have up here, yeah, you can see that there's a, there's a keeping, as it were. So I want you to think about this. There's a keeping for the believer, there's a keeping for the fallen angels, and there's a keeping for the apostate false teachers. So the, the keeping for the believer. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 1.4, the same language, to obtain an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, having been kept, having been reserved in heaven for you. This has been kept for you. God Almighty is keeping this for you. 
those of you who are in Christ. There's a keeping for the perverse and fallen angels in Genesis 6. Peter writes in 2 Peter 2, verse 9, For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them into the pit and delivered them to chains of darkness, being kept, reserved for judgment. So there's a keeping by God for judgment to the fallen angels who sin in that unique, perverted way. And then there's a keeping for false teachers. These are springs without water, misdriven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been kept, has been reserved. Now, for what reason might the false teacher have this unique keeping? But those who are in Christ were kept, were kept for eternal joy with Christ. Angels being kept for future judgment. The false teachers, they're singled out here to say, look, God's keeping them too for a profound expression of judgment. So for what reason might they experience such a severe judgment? Well, as we've talked about and as we've walked through, the repertoire is quite full already, but Peter continues to fill it up. Just indictment after indictment after indictment. And he continues in verses 18 and 19. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by sensual lust of the flesh those who barely escape from the ones who conducted themselves in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. As though It's as though they're having some proud authority. They, they speak meaningless, valueless, powerless words. The antithesis to truth. And again, I don't, I don't swim in these pools very often, um, in part because of being in 2 Peter chapter 2, and in part because of the, the measure of exposure that bad teachers tend to have. It is shocking if you just pay attention and you've got normal sense about you in terms of biblical sense. You can see what Peter's saying here. Arrogant, inflated, swollen up, meaningless, useless words. And I've watched them say nothing and crowds of people, wow! And like, what are you wowing? They said nothing. And they certainly said nothing that was tethered to truth. They said something that was a point of relation to your experience and framed it in a way that it used to be in like the, um, uh, what was her name? Did the newspaper articles all the time? Dear yeah, the Dear Abbey of theology, as it were. Like what? Just meaningless, valueless, powerless words. The very antithesis to those who declare the very oracles of God. So their words don't express worship. They don't express holiness or grace or hope or any untainted expression of truth. Whether they are inflated and arrogant words consisting of cheap bait for the sensual seduction of weak persons. Again, I was um, not to, I don't know why dad asked me to, to about a certain name. I looked into it. And I thought, boy, this guy really is bad news. I try, not, I try to be very careful because not everybody's bad news. Maybe they had a bad week, but he was bad news. And he finished his message. And I told Denise, I was watching a clip from it. And I thought, this guy, he was listening to our messages. And he said, I'm going to do the exact opposite of what they were teaching there. Because he starts saying, you know, making promises that he can't make. And it was a wooing promise. Things that I would love to hear if I was in the circumstances that he was explaining. But he had no authority. And, and demanding things of spiritual forces in ways that weren't consistent. It was just arrogant, empty words. And you can see both the arrogant emptiness and the distortion of truth and good things with the promises extended toward these more vulnerable persons, especially. Uh, probably those who are new to the faith and those who don't have the same rooting and maturity. That's, that's the nature of their, their targeting. 
promising what they neither have for themselves or can offer others, namely freedom. Namely freedom. So such empty promises befit those who have been described as streams without water. That's what streams without water do, isn't it? They promise something they don't even have. As they lack substance, they lack hope, they lack purpose, they are dead and useless, a shadow of what could be but is not. The freedom they offer is clearly, it's not political freedom, that's really outside the scope of their what they could offer. It's not social freedom in some regard, but rather it would be spiritual in nature. Being a false teacher, they're identifying themselves in a spiritual leadership role, so they're offering some form of spiritual freedom, as it were, demonstrating once more the nature and function of the false teacher. People look to them for spiritual hope and freedom in Christ, but they offer what they do not have and they cannot give. Further, that which they offer is perverted through the carnality of those whose eyes are full of adultery and unceasing sin. In view of this, Many of the commentators, and I was, um, I, I sent Frank and Matt a message, I think it was Friday evening, and I have no idea, I, I probably should ask what they think about this sometimes. And like, I'm, I'm wrestling through what a lot of commentators are concluding, but I don't see. They're probably thinking, it's Friday night, what are you doing? Um, but sometimes they'll just have firm deductions, this is what it meant. And I'm like, well, I can see that's a deduction, but I don't know that's what Peter explicitly said. But that being said, that there's a common deduction proposed that freedom was actually um, an advocation of sexual liberation like freedom. And that's what these false teachers are promoting, that you can you can do as you please and be as carnal as you want because you're free. And the false teachers were promoting this for newly delivered believers, newly delivered believers out of like circumstances, as though in Christ they could have experiences of some sort of uh, moral impunity. And again, it was a common conclusion by the commentators. I think it's reasonable, but I wouldn't say it's explicit here. So... I'm going to say, I'm not going to be as firm as they are, but I think, I think they're tracking well. We're looking at the totality of context, and I think it's a reasonable conclusion. So we'll work with that some. Um, and again, it's, it's a curious matter that, again, newly delivered believers, they've been freed from the power and the penalty of sin. And so I do wonder, uh, what are they being offered in terms of freedom? They're already free. What are they being offered? And so that would lend itself toward, you're free to do these things, these things that, you know, you, it's different now. You're free. And so ultimately, this would have to be some form of freedom from the lordship of Christ, right? What else are you going to be free from? You're, you're free from the power of sin. You're free from the penalty of sin. Christ is Lord. Is it freedom from Christ's lordship? Is it freedom from what Christ would demand? The lordship that has provided the faithful and mature believer to take on the identification of being slaves of Christ? You don't, you don't have to express your identity quite like that. You can, you can take some liberty. Having lives submitted to patterns of righteous and holy living, that's what a slave of Christ does, so they're restricted to obedience. So maybe the freedom is from that full form of obedience. The idea is that the newly delivered believer, those who have barely recently escaped the mire of this unregenerate world, they would be a greater vulnerability toward a perverting of their freedom. So again, they take things pretty far. You don't have to. Is that the freedom they're expressing? Well, I think there's a reasonable grounds to conclude that based off of the carnality and the sexual perversity that Peter's expressed as the unbelieving apostate false teachers having. Again, perhaps even they're persuaded uh, toward a distortion of what Paul expressed in Romans 6 and Galatians 5 where we read, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And then um, that was verse 1 in chapter 6 of Romans. And then verse 15, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? 
Well, we might speculate that the false teachers reading this and they distort it and they say, you know what? Yes. Why not? Grace has you covered. Don't you understand the grace of God and the, the joy that he expects for you to have and the reasonableness of his expectations? Oh, boy, he's so gentle. He just, he does, it's fine. Love one another. Primarily leaving off Paul's may it never be. They just leave that off, driving home a distortion that you're free and grace abounds while also neglecting the fact that our freedom is of such a nature that it's designed to serve others. Remember that Galatians 5.13, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. But this is the very thing we observe today, is it not? The profane irony of the abuses of freedom being promoted in the guise of loving others. So again, just let people exercise love for one another and don't be so harsh. Don't demand these things. Slaves of Christ, good gracious. Do you know what kind of language that means? So while the popular conclusion of commentators has been that this is a promise of sexual liberation like freedom, I would argue it's less of a firm conclusion, but certainly a reasonable deduction. I think they're tracking. I think that's the track that makes sense. And it's one that reasonably pairs with the expressions of the character and conduct we've observed throughout this chapter for the false teacher. And tragically, I think it helps us to better understand our contempor the contemporary success of false teachers, too. Well, look around. Are you paying attention to what is called Christianity and evangelical Christianity? The success is expressed not only in the broader church's acceptance of sexual perversion in common culture. The church all over is capitulating on this, isn't it? It's, it's fine. It's fine. It can only be fine if you're free to have it be fine, right? If you're under the lordship of Christ, it's not fine. And yet the common culture is running roughshod over the church. The church says it's fine. And painfully within the church, so many within the church, the acceptance of sexual perversion expressed from fornication, adultery, and increasingly among many, even homosexuality. Don't, don't speak against that. Don't, don't be firm about that. That's unlo it's unloving. You hear that? That doesn't sound like a slave of Christ. That doesn't even sound like someone that loves someone. So it's of no surprise the false teacher under the banner of Christ would target the new and the weak believer and the motive for these things? Well, they themselves are slaves of corruption, having been wholly overcome by the very things with which they are using for bait for the destruction of others. That's their reasoning for action. The apostate false teacher seeks to pervert the church because they themselves have been so perverted themselves. And they bait with these things and they entice not the strong, not the ones like Peter that would say, I'm a slave of Christ. And he'll struggle in different areas. And we're familiar with that. We struggle in various areas. But those who have barely escaped, those who are new believers, not rooted in the same capacity that they will be in time. They're those who lead others away by their sensuality, who go after the flesh and its corrupt lust, and are already known to entice unstable souls. This is the modus operandi of the false teacher and are now stated to exercise a seductive enticement with the aim to have others join their slavery to corruption. They would have the weak to believe the mature are on the wrong side of the prison bars. It's such a foolishness. They both see through the bars and they're like, well, they're the ones that are incarcerated. The ones, we're the ones that are free. It continues on verse 24, if they are overcome, if the apostate false teachers are overcome, having both escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and having again been entangled in them, then the last state has become worse for them than the first. So if they've been overcome, they're powerless to restrain or defeat. How and why? 
because at best they were blind and short-sighted. Remember that in First Peter or Second Peter chapter one verse nine. And at worst, there's stains, blemishes, and accursed children. Remember that was last week, chapter two, verse fourteen. And in their ignorance, they don't even realize that they have no fighting chance to overcome. And in their carnality, they don't really. They're indifferent, nevertheless. So whereas Peter could identify himself as a slave of Christ and affirm Christ's lordship repeatedly throughout this letter, they are found to be slaves of corruption because they have been overcome by nothing short of corruption, the very thing which believers have been set free. Having escaped what? 2 Peter 1, 4, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And by the very nature of their deception, they too gave every indication that they also have been freed from the corruption that is in the world by lust. But in truth, had they been? No, they never had been. The apparent deliverance and progress was at best superficial, with appetites for sin maybe abated for a time, but never truly broken. And to further make sense of their context, I think it's helpful to note how comprehensively uh, Peter speaks of the Lord here. How does he speak of him? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A full expression of identity and title, which speaks to the true believer's relationship with Jesus, who is indeed our Lord, our Savior, and the Christ. An expression of identity which speaks to the false teacher's own presumed deliverance. They would not testify that it, they wouldn't say that I was delivered by a higher power or some God out there, but they would say I was by Jesus Christ, whose identity again is expressed as Lord and Savior, a lordship that they clearly deny. We saw that in Second Peter chapter two, verse one, denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And this at full expression of title, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you're familiar with it, right? It's, that's our language. Um, it's quite familiar, but when I was looking into how the, that full title is used and expressed throughout the New Testament, we only see it used a few times in the Scriptures, and almost exclusively by Peter. Uh, just a handful of times does that full expression, our, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, all coupled together, get expressed and one of the times I have for Peter, it's actually mostly there and otherwise implied. So it's used almost exclusively, exclusively by Peter, perhaps because he's drawing something together. That'd be my argument, namely to express that a denial of Christ's identity as Lord is also a denial of his identity as Savior. He is assaulting the false teachers who have assaulted the Lordship of Christ at the very beginning of the chapter. He impacts what that looks like and he returns to it at the end. I think he's explaining that, look, if you want to claim Christ, you can claim them all because it's slavery to Christ or it's slavery to sin. And as you remember, the false teacher is one who has denied the master who bought them, testifying of Christ with their lips and rejecting him in the totality of their conduct. They are again being entangled in the carnality of their lust. Therefore, the false teachers are among those who claim identification with Christ, and yet their loyalty, their servitude is to sin. And they find an easy audience it's always an easy audience. I was talking to Denise again. I do have other conversations, but maybe this is most of them about these things. And I was like, you know, I was, they, they fill up stadiums. It's so easy. It's so easy when, when you bait with these things, right? It's so easy. They find an easy audience who joins them in their identification with Christ and servitude to sin, an identity and conduct that when brought to the light demonstrates that they never truly have been in Christ. It might be that Judas-like is it me, Lord? Until you finally pull it back and like, whoa, that's what they were really about. And then it becomes quite plain. It demonstrates they were never truly in Christ. The confusion is cleared up. Rather, and their testimony 
They were maybe at best superficially righteous in their conduct. And it was not genuine righteousness. And, and their testimony might have been an identity with the church, but it really it was just proximity to the church. And truthfully, at the end of the day, they were just clandestine apostates. They weren't outright apostates. They were secret ones. An identity that will only serve to compound the weight of their final judgment. Because for them, the last state, Peter says, is worse than the first, as their rejection of Christ is all the more profound. So where's the merits of the line from one of Alfred Tennyson's poems? I think that's how you pronounce it. Thankfully, Jennifer's not here to, to be disappointed in the moment. But uh, you're familiar with this line. It could be reasonably considered as it effectively states the, the merit of lost love over no love. He states it's better to have loved and lost than never to loved at all. Okay, maybe we can think, oh, isn't that cute? Yes, the experience, uh, even if there's loss, there was at least experience. But no such thing. Maybe in general relationships that could be said, but no such thing can be said in relation to Christ. It is never best to have expressed love for Christ, but never meant it. It is worse than having never expressed love for Christ at all. So their identity with Christ will further condemn them. Verse 21, For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. So the way of righteousness that Peter expresses here, that's the Christian experience. And by this, I don't mean an experience of a temporal nature like going on a trip to a unique location, experiencing it for a limited time, and coupling it with many other like experiences, but experience in a more absolute way. Like one serving in the military whose experience is comprehensive and all-defining and shaped by a clear authority. For the genuine believer, the way of righteousness is also a comprehensive and all-defining experience directed by the authority of Christ, who is Lord. But again, for these who have known, but not truly known, it's all the more worse than having never known at all, which is itself, I think, a terrifying prospect. But truthfully made worse by these who have confessed and denied, or as Peter states, have left the path of righteousness. This explains why the last state is worse than the first, that it was not that it was not best to at least have not, that it was not best to, well, at least they had that sweet experience with the church or by all appearances were with Christ. No, that's not best. That's not better because proximity and opportunity and clarity of truth will in its rejection only serve to further condemn. So it's always worse to apostatize. But as we have seen there, like Balaam. And what did Balaam do? Did it ever trouble you? When Balak hired him, he said, let me go talk to Yahweh. I hope it bothered you. What's this guy? Why is he Why is he appropriating that language? Why is he actually praying? Why is the Lord even engaging him? It's, it can be very confusing. But as we've seen, they're like Balaam, calling upon Yahweh and yet forsaking the way, going astray. You remember, Balaam had a very clear command. Don't curse, don't go. Right? And what did he do? He worked hard to manipulate its parameters for his own carnal advantage. And so also these apostates, these false teachers, have a clear command. The apostolic testimony or New Testament scriptures, as Peter expresses in chapter 3, verse 2, and they too have worked hard to manipulate the clear command for their own carnal advantage. But just as Balaam suffered a righteous destruction, so will they. And to punctuate the truth that there was no true change in the hearts and lives of the apostate false teacher, what does Peter do? He finishes with two, a two-part proverb. There really was a There really never was a change. And he says in verse 22, the message of the true proverb has happened to them. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. The dog and the pig 
two animals that were best thought lowly, if not despised. Uh, dogs in this context would not be equated with our contemporary domesticated companions. These were varmints that wandered about eating trash, carcasses, disrupting purses by their unwelcome intrusions. They were not creatures you would reach out to pet, but rather diligently avoid. And we see that language even Paul in uh, Philippians chapter 3, the dogs. He's not saying, oh, you know, cute, cuddly creatures. He's dis despising them. And then you have sows or pigs. They were obviously unclean animals, and even to the present are basically the, the poster creature for unclean animals when referencing the Mosaic dietary laws. It's the most simple expression we can think of with pigs. They're also known for their wallowing in the mud and filth, something you can, you can see even today, very plainly. It's just part of who they are. You go down a country road or you visit a farm, you can find a pig just nasty, wallowing, burrowing in the mud there. And Peter, perhaps with the thought that Jesus is on pairing of these animals in a context of the rejection of truth, remember Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, dogs and pigs in the context of rejecting truth. Here he expresses that such is the nature of this apostate false teacher, and ultimately all who apostatize for that matter. Their conduct betrays the reality there was never a true change. And that should help us find some relief in understanding why they've appropriated our language. It doesn't matter. They never really changed. It wasn't theirs to begin with. A dog remained a dog, right? A pig remained a pig. Neither became new creations. So while a dog might expel something repulsive from its body, vomit it out, it still reverts to its basis instinct and will simply re-ingest the vomit again, this time in a more disgusting way. It was disgusting enough the body said, reject it! And the dog said, it looks like a meal. It's disgusting. And while the pig might be externally cleansed, it will not choose to remain this way, soon finding its way back to the sloppy mire, returning to its comfortably filthy condition. And such is the expected conduct of these creatures of instinct, just as the expected conduct of those who Peter has stated earlier in our chapter, but these, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, blaspheming where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering unrighteousness as the wages of their unrighteousness, considering it a pleasure to revel in the daytime they are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and unceasing sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, they are cursed children, forsaking the right, the right way, they have gone astray. And such is how we could describe the whole of this engagement with the false teachers all throughout Second Peter chapter 2. Three terms should come to mind, vomit, mud, and darkness. That's your false teacher. Disgusting. They purport to have been cleansed and walk in the light, but have worked their way back to the slop and filth of their sins, baiting and drawing others into it with them. And ultimately, they will find that they are thrown in darkness, a darkness that is darker than that which they could have imagined, ultimately a lake of fire that produces not light, but torment, and a torment fitting to their offense, which is profound because they have assaulted Christ's bride. You understand that, right? It's not just, oh, those, those silly apostates. They talk and they're posing like us and they wear our clothes and whatever. No, they've come in, appropriated the identity of being in Christ, appropriate the identity of teaching to assault Christ and assault Christ's bride. And not only this, they've assaulted from, again, within vigorously to produce adulterous follies, going after the weak. This is a nasty bunch and they will suffer. They will suffer accordingly. For this, they will give an adjust account. 
As Peter states, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially, a view to false teachers, those who go after the flesh and its corrupt lust and despise authority. Okay, so how do we respond? There's not a lot of us in there. We talked about them so much. But there is an us, isn't there? There's an us to put to action. We've mentioned it a few times. Uh, jumped ahead here. Um, how do we respond? Well, Peter tells us, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest you, having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You might think, okay, but how? How? How do I grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in, in such a way that I can be sure that I will remain steadfast, that I can be sure that I won't apostatize, that I can be sure that I'm not going to uh, fall to the vile trickery of the false teacher? Well, we know, don't we? We've walked through this, we've worked through this. We know how we can be certain of our entrance into the eternal kingdom, and we know how we can be sure to never stumble. And this is um, how we're going to finish today, applying all diligence in your faith. Supply moral excellence, and your moral excellence, knowledge, and your knowledge, self-control, and your self-control, perseverance, and your perseverance, godliness, and your godliness, brotherly love, and in your brotherly love, agape love. For if these things are yours and are increasing, what? They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For in whom these things are not present, that one is blind, being nearsighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, you be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. For in doing these things, you, you, genuinely in Christ, will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. And at this point in time, some of you might be thinking, he keeps citing that list, those seven things. For months now, he keeps making reference back to these seven things, these things. And I do. And in the shadow of the apostate false teacher, we need to remember these things because we desire to remain steadfast and to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so in the spirit of Peter, therefore, I also will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been strengthened in the truth which is present with you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that part of the care that you've provided your church is to help us to understand the, the nature of the threat and the assaults that will come. We can naturally understand the nature of the corruption of sin in a general perspective. When we've been redeemed out of a, a wicked and unbelieving world, we can be uh, sad and, and, and have a measure of confusion from what was expressed in First Peter that this world doesn't understand when we don't continue in, in the patterns of, of, uh, of uh, carnality and uh, wicked conduct. It confuses them and it frustrates them. And so we understand that kind of assault. And we can understand even unbelieving governments and civic authorities that, uh, that see the obedience to the Lordship of Christ as an insult or assault on them. But it is hard and it's confusing when those who we walk with and love and who use the language and seemingly lead and care for others when they are found to uh, never have been in Christ, 
And that's a profound hurt. Um, that's a profound loss. And the damage is, is, is unlike any other damage. And we kind of wonder, do you understand this? And then we remember that uh, you were the one that was personally betrayed. Judas approaching and betraying with a kiss. That, that man who walked with and, and by all indications loved and declared Christ and the message of the kingdom and saw things that no other persons got to see outside of such a small group of people. So we understand you know the intimacy of that pain. We know that you understand that that too is part of the Lord working out his plan. It also, if nothing else, demonstrates how magnificent and spectacular your keeping is. That there, there are those who are never in Christ that fall away, but you keep your own. You keep your own even while others fall away. And so, Lord, would you produce in us a steadfastness that Peter clearly wants for us. He's an older, dying man. He knew you revealed to him that his, his time was coming to a conclusion. And these, he spent a lot of time talking about some very terrible people. So we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that there's more to the story, but we thank you for these moments to which we can learn to be better guarded, that we can have a mature perspective on difficult things. And we ask that you would indeed be pleased to keep us, and that part of your keeping is our doing, and so may you find us faithful in the supplying of our faith with these things, and the, the joy of walking in obedience and holiness and longing for your return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.